Let's get it. April 10th, 2019. Born the Battle. Brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Another wonderful week outside of podcast land. Uh, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I am in the middle of building a house, working on getting out of my in-laws' basement. Took the wife to the design center this weekend for the house, and let me tell you, that is an experience that is a test in every marriage. If you want to excite your wife, take her to a design center for a house, and uh, if you want to take away her joy... Show her how much everything costs. <laughs> um, haven't started the VA home loan process yet. That actually happens closer to uh, the house being built. So when that starts, I will start sharing that as well. All right. Got a news release for you. For immediate release, VA increases contracting with service disabled and veteran owned small businesses. Secretary of Veterans Affairs Robert Wilkie announced today an increase in the department's goals of contracting with service-disabled veteran-owned businesses and veteran-owned small businesses. Uh, For fiscal year 2019, VA seeks to to award at least 15% of its total contract dollars to service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses, representing a 5% increase in both goals, a significant change not noted since 2010. It goes on three years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court underscored our mandate to do business with service disabled and other veteran entrepreneurs. Wilkie said, we have increased the dollars awarded each year, but now it's time to update the goals to reflect this new commitment. We need to lock in the gains, the gains we have made and continue to build for the future. In fiscal year 2017, the last year for which official data is available, VA awarded $5.1 billion, with a B, in contracts to service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses and $5.4 billion to veteran-owned small businesses. In fiscal year 2017, VA awarded more than one-fourth of the dollars given to service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses by the federal government, more than all other federal civilian agencies combined which is pretty cool. Previously, the service disabled veteran-owned small businesses and veteran-owned small businesses goals were 10 and 12% established by former VA Secretary Eric Shinseki in fiscal year 2010. For more information on this press release, you can always go to www.va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash P-R-E-S-S-R-E-L. So we're up to 60% of our goals for ratings and reviews. First of all, thank you. It mean, it does mean a lot and it does help me in looking at how better to improve this show. Second of all, we are at 60% and that means Adrian Cronauer of Good Morning Vietnam fame interviewing Mel Brooks. That episode is 60% the, on the way to you. Uh, how about this? When we get to 75, I'll give you a snippet, a snippet of that episode because uh, it's hilarious. They talk about Mel Brooks's service time and ser- when he when he served and they talk about his time with the USO, among many other hilarious things. So, again, thank you. And when we get to 75 percent at 75 ratings interviews, I'll release a snippet of that episode. And when we get to 100, I'll release the full thing. One thing that is the full thing right now is VetTech. VetTech is a new five-year pilot program that trains veterans in the skills needed by employers in the high-tech sector. 
VA is looking for training providers to train veterans in computer software, information science, media application, data processing, and computer programming. VA pays the program costs to the provider and the veterans can receive a housing stipend while in the program. The veterans pay nothing. Applications for the first year are now open for training providers. To participate, your facility must have been in operation for at least two years and have successfully provided your high-tech program for at least one year. Veterans need one day, that's just one day of GI Bill entitlement to apply. And the training doesn't count against your GI Bill entitlement. For more information, go to the GI Bill website at www.benefits.va.gov forward slash GI Bill and look for Vet Tech at the top of the page. Application for veterans will open early this summer. So this week's guest is a great one. Her and I have been trying to link up to do a podcast, whether it be mine or hers, for a number of years now. She's a veteran of some movies and shows that you may have seen. Uh, she has a recurring role on Stranger Things. She had a guest appearance on Hawaii Five O. She was featured in this year's A Dog's Way Home. She's been on Timeless and Nickelodeon's Game Shakers. She also shared how the military community in Hollywood helped her on this new journey. She is Navy veteran Jennifer Marshall. Thank you so much. I mean, thank you for for being flexible because kids throw another dimension in it. Sure, I bet. You know, I uh, I, we, I know we've tried to do this a couple times, even when you had your your podcast. So we have, nice right? Finally, be able to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice to finally be able to do it. I know, um, right? Well, it all came it all came back around. So. Absolutely. Are you still doing the that podcast, uh, Military Veterans and Creative Careers? No. So what happened was um, Trevor went to medical school. Trevor went to pre-med. Okay. And Justin was in Northern California. And so it was just kind of difficult. My schedule was getting kind of crazy. So we put it on hiatus. Trevor went to medical school or pre-med and he just got picked up for a commission. And so he's going back in the army right. as a doctor. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I hope it uh, comes back. That was a pretty cool podcast. Yeah, it was good. I think that people don't necessarily think that veterans work in the industry. So it opened, it opened a lot of people's eyes. When, so whenever I talk to, or whenever I'm with my, my father-in-law, uh, he's watching the news and, uh, your new day commercial comes on. I was like, yeah, I know her. And my father-in-law was always like, no, 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 you don't. I was like, yeah. So now, now that we can finally do something together, I can finally say, yeah, see, I told you we had a, we had a, I wasn't lying. (laughs) I know that mortgage girl. So, um, you were a Navy logistics specialist, correct? I was. I was an aviation storekeeper, which is now considered a logistics specialist. So I did logistics on the aviation side. And then I was my last command. I was uh, at the I was on the USS Theodore Roosevelt um, in AIMD, the Aircraft Intermediate Maintenance Department. So um, it was funny because after 9-11, the Navy, much different than the Marine Corps, as you know, um, the Navy really never taught anyone how to shoot. And so after 9-11, they were like, oh, we we need security and we need M. And we need all these things. And oh, no, nobody knows how to shoot. So basically anybody who knew how to shoot, they pulled us for ship security defense force. And so I did a lot of that after 9-11. Great. 
What is a, what was the, so your original MOS, is that not, has it been rolled into a different one now? Yes. So aviation storekeeper just became storekeeper. And then after that, they wanted to make it like a fancy name. So now it's a logistics specialist, which I, which I think is better to be fair, because when you get out of the Navy, you know, if you're seeking a career and they say, what did you do in the Navy? And you say, I was a storekeeper. That's not really, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, so you minded a store with, with your set of keys. <laughs> <laughs> so then you, I'm sure you ran, would run into, well, how does, how is that, you know, were you actually, you know, in the Navy? Cause that does, it sounds like a shopkeeper. So. It, it does. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. And I, when I got out of the Navy, I wanted to run as fast and as far away from what I did in the military because it was not, you know, I kind of fell into it, but I wasn't challenged by it. I didn't really enjoy it. I was good at what sure. I did, but you know, I, I, it just wasn't for me. I, I tell people now uh, I'm old core uh, because my my MOS is currently was last year was uh, rolled into public affairs, so oh, combat yeah. camera, combat videographers, combat camera, that was rolled over into public affairs. So you just say that you were you're just an old you're old navy. That's you're right. Navy, we you know? we can be old and that's okay because old means wise. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So what originally prompted you to join the navy? You know, I was from this super small town and I, I was like, I need to escape. I need to escape. And I always knew that I wanted to join the military. So I, I think I had nine, one, two, three, nine veterans in my family. And so basically it was whatever recruiter called me first. And thankfully it was the Navy recruiter. And I remember him on the phone. He was like, Jennifer, I want to talk to you about possibilities in the U S Navy. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm game. And he's like, okay, so what do you want to talk about? And I was like, no, I'm good. And he said, yeah, but we can talk about, I said, I, I'm a sure thing. You don't need to sell me on this. Let's just go to maps and just get this done. <laughs> I am the the easiest sell you will ever have. Let's just go sign this paperwork. You knew you knew you were going to do these service. You didn't know what service, but you just know you were going to serve at some yes. point. Yes. Got you. So, um, so what was the hometown? What was the hometown's name? Uh, it's a small town. It's still pretty small. It's called Carbondale, Colorado. It's in between Aspen and Glenwood Springs. It's up in the mountains. And at the time it had one stoplight. Now I think it has three, but at the time it had one. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. I can relate. I was, I was born in a town called Hump Tulips, Washington, which is what, a, what was it called? It's it's Hump Tulips, Washington. Oh, okay, Hump Tulips. <laughs> Actual name. Wow. True story. Population three hundred. So know know a little bit about about growing up in a small town right. with, with <laughs> one or zero stoplights. But um, so I think uh, you and I can relate right, on that. Escape. We both right wanted now. to get out of that, of that that hometown. So so when you were in, who was either a your best friend or your greatest mentor? Oh gosh, I had a senior chief. Um, and it's funny, I still text him to this day. I haven't seen him in 20 years, but, uh, well, probably less than that. 17. Really? Yeah. And I still text him and his name was Andy Anderson. And he was a senior chief at my first command on San Nicolas Island. And he was just a senior chief who took care of his people. You know, there's a lot of politics in the military and there's a lot of people jockeying to get ahead. And he was just somebody that, you know, to the detriment of his own career, because he he said, you know, I've pissed too many people off. I'll never make master chief. And I'm fine with that. But I saw him. Trusty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I saw him stand up for people time and time and time again. And I, I just have so much respect for him. I had so much respect for him then. And I do today, you know, looking back on on what I know now just a, a true, a true chief, like what you want in a chief that that's what senior chief Anderson was. That's great. 
That's really good to hear. It's really good to hear with those, those mentors that you, you, even though it was like your first enlistment, right? Yeah. Like you, and so how you still remember those people and that you can still connect with those people even today, even though you haven't actually physically seen them in years. Oh, yeah. I, I remember I had gone over to his house one day once I had gotten I, I wasn't out of the Navy, but I was transferring to my next command. So I had went over mm -hmm. to his house just to say hi, introduce him to somebody uh, that I was dating at the time. And his kids were teenagers. And we just talked the other day. And I think he said his kids are 20 six and 24. So it's just crazy. Like his kids are older than I was when I went over to say hi to him and his family. So it's pretty crazy. That's interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. So you, you, you did mention that, that, you know, being a shopkeeper wasn't challenging. What, what was the final straw that broke the camel's back? Why, why did you finally decide to leave the service? Oh, you know, I never wanted to get out. Um, I ended up getting sick from the anthrax shots. And so oh I was deployed in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. And we were all mandated at that time, I believe, by the Secretary of Defense. Anybody who was deployed had to get a series of six anthrax those. shots. Yeah. And so... Yeah. Uh, you know, after the first shot, I, I just felt like I had the fl flu and I didn't put two and two together. I just thought, you know, I'm not feeling well. And then after the second, I went to medical and I said, you know, I think maybe I have mono. I, you know, I don't know. And of course, mono, they call it the kissing disease, but people get it on ships because we're just in, in close quarters. And, uh, you know, after the third one, I realized I'm not sure what's going on, but I never went to medical before. And now I'm at medical all the time. I, I couldn't get up. I couldn't, uh, it, it I was just a mess. And when it came wow. time for my sixth shot, I went to the senior medical officer and I said, please don't make me do this. And he said, you know, this is mandatory. And I said, I just, I just want you to look at my medical records and just tell me if you think that there's any connection. And he looked through it and he said, you know, you've really never been to medical prior to this. My medical record was very thin. And then by that time it was, it was big. It was the size of a big book. And he mm -hmm. actually signed off and said, no. And I remember one of the corpsmen kind of respectfully arguing with him, like, sir, this is required. And he said, this is poisoning her. What part of no, don't you understand? I signed it. It's the end. And <laughs> once again, you know, leadership, like that was something where I saw leadership where he said, yes, I understand that this is what is supposed to happen, but I'm making... I'm making an executive call based off the fact that I'm a medical doctor and the directive is what the directive is, but I know that this is not good for her. So I'm still not sure exactly what happened. I know when I got out, the VA did not recognize that at the time. And I've since talked to people who got out and that is one of the the things when you get out, it says, do you have any reactions to anthrax shots, to the burn pits, yeah. to, you know, so now they recognize that it's a possible issue with some people. But if it wasn't for that, I, I would have been in for 30 years probably. <laughs> Wow. I didn't like my so job, nothing, but I love the Navy. Sure. Sure. I mean, you, you go everywhere, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that doctor, that Navy doctor, uh, you know, the, the last episode, John Buckley, he's, he's the military relations manager for Coke industries. Mm -hmm. And he was on the, the, the last episode and he was talking about, uh, um, never take no from a piss ant. That was one thing he learned <laughs> in the military. <laughs> so it sounds like your doctor. That needs to be a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like he didn't take no from piss ant. that's right. good that's good so how did you start your transition and how did you finally get to to la how did you start your career oh gosh so when i got out i didn't really know what i was gonna do um i knew that i could possibly be the first college graduate in my family on my father's side um it 
That's cool. The, the thought of going to school, it's kind of too good to pass up because, you know, they give you money every month to live on and they pay for school. So I had never intended. What's that? Yeah. You're getting paid to go to college. Oh, right? yeah. So it's like, yeah. So how can you yeah. turn that down? And I'd never intended to go to college. I had joined the military thinking I'll probably never go to college. I'm not cut out for college. So I mm-hmm. went to a local community college in Virginia and thankfully they had a wonderful student veterans affairs office because if you don't have a student vets office, a lot of vets just get intimidated. They don't know what to do. They don't know the difference between quarter hour, semester hour, what you need, an associate's, a bachelor's, a master's. Nobody knows because that's not really sure. what we do. So um, you know, when you first get out, you don't, you don't know these things. And yeah, so I, I had started there. I, I went to school. I transferred to Virginia Wesleyan University. I double majored in international politics and Spanish with a minor in history. And then I transferred, um, I went to ODU, Old Dominion University in Norfolk, and I did a year of graduate work there in in international politics. And then by that time, my husband had retired from the Navy and we relocated to Los Angeles. So I left for Los Angeles in 2011. That was about one year into my master's program. And then once I came out here, I started a a different master's program. International politics was not for me. (laughs) And I discovered this (laughs) after the first semester, because as it, as an undergrad, it's great because you're dealing with real life scenario and in graduate work, it's all theory. And I was like, Oh no, this is, this is terrible. Escape, escape. It's it's a big brain stuff. Oh, big brain (laughs) stuff. Yeah. So I left and then, you know, I came out here and I said, well, let me try this acting thing. I'd been doing a little bit of acting in Virginia and I had worked on some non-union shows. I had about four commercials running. And so I said, well, you know, I'm the type of girl I like the big leagues. So let me come out here and see what happens. Cool. That's awesome. So you, you, you started your career out in, out in LA about in what year? So I actually started acting probably my first credit was in 2005, but that was all in Norfolk. It's a very small market. And then by the time I moved out to Los Angeles, I came in 2011 and then I started acting again, probably in 2013. So I've been out here hitting the pavement pretty hard for about six years now. Yeah, you have. You, uh, everyone, everyone in the veteran community I talk to, they're like, "Oh, talk to Jennifer Marshall. She is a hustler. <laughs> she is a hustler. She is hardworking woman." I think I, um, I think if you look up hustler in the dictionary, like there's a picture of of me in regards to this because I always tell people, as vets, we will never be the skinniest or the most beautiful or the buffest or the most well connected or the richest. Like we will never be any of these things. But one thing that yeah. you can do is you can just work your ass off and out hustle everybody. Just use your work ethic that you had in the military because a lot of civilians don't have that. And I've, Boom. you know, I've literally talked to, to people who had a meltdown, you know, in acting class over having to memorize three pages for the next day, like a literal meltdown. And I'm like three pages, try being on deployment, try working for 18 hours a day. Like it doesn't even compare, you know? Yeah. You know, I was looking at your IMDb. I mean, you you start out with like one credit in 2012, then you had five in 2013. You have 15 credits in 2014, five in 2015, five in 2016, another seven in 2017, which includes Stranger Things, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, uh, you know, we were all, all of us that knew you were, were excited when you, when you got that, mm, when you got you. that gig. Uh, eight, eight, another eight in 2018, including a very good scene, a very, a really great scene in Hawaii. If I oh, thank uh, you. recently watched, watched it. I mean, what a great way to, to showcase, um, the, 
the honor, the honor transfer. Yes. Yes. And, and I knew Tanner, when I auditioned for that, um, it's funny because my agent had submitted me for some reason. I, I was not called in, um, which I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm like, this is so me. This is Jennifer as Lieutenant Colonel Bailey, but I didn't get called in. And I believe they re-released the role. They saw people. They didn't like anybody. They re-released the role. I got the script or the sides, which is the portion of the script that we auditioned with. I got it at five, but I was going out to eat with a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a year, Michael Schlitz, who's an ambassador for the Gary Sinise Foundation. Wonderful guy. And uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to go home and work on this. So it was 9 p.m. And my audition was at 9.30 a.m. the next morning and it was two hours away. So I ended up more than that in rush hour. It's probably three hours away. So I ended up leaving my house at 6.30 for a 9.30 audition. And I went in and I knew like, how would a civilian audition for this role? Because it's got the slow salute. It's got, you know, she's calling commands and I knew it would be difficult for a civilian. So I thought as long as I have a good audition, my audition is going to be much different than a civilian's audition because I actually know what's going on in the scene. And so for them to cast me as a joint mortuary affairs officer in the scene, it was so important to me that this was done right. And it was done beautifully. And I'm very appreciative that they saw the benefit in hiring a veteran who's an actor for this because I wasn't a random actor wearing a costume. I was wearing a uniform that means something that's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you saw in, in, in the, in your, in the scene, you saw, you saw, you know, it was shot really well. The writing was well, um, how everything was handled in that scene was, you know, if I was, I, I took, when I watched it, I took myself in as a, uh, if I was a civilian watching it, I feel like if I was, I may have probably learned something about that role, which I right. think is, is the best thing. Um, I just wanted to compliment you on that. I think that was just a really, 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 really great scene. Thank you. And, so. and you know, what was important to me about that was the military is less than 1% of the population. So for a lot of people, when our brother and sisters die abroad, it's someone else's war. It's a thing that happens and maybe we know somebody, oh, that's a shame, too bad. People don't really understand. And that ended up being one of the highest rated episodes in Hawaii Five-O history. And that scene oh, wow. in particular was tweeted out so many times and reposted. And I think it's because it it brought the sacrifice home for the average American and people yeah. understood this happens. This is not just a TV show with a fake scene. This happens on a regular basis. And the comments that I got in the emails and, and the texts that I got, it showed me that people do care and it did make a difference. And it was touching not only for vets who watched it, but also for civilians who are far removed from that. The hats off to you. That's, that was just a really, really good scene. I hope, I hope the, uh, the, and I hope the compliments keep coming in. So you got, th- uh, three in 2019 and including Sony's a dog's way home. Uh, I think that might be this generation's homeward bound. <laughs> it so is. It so <laughs> is. Yes. And you got a couple more projects that you got to come up that are coming up and I'll, and we'll talk about it in a sec, but before we do, I just, I want to ask you, what were some of the challenges as a veteran breaking into LA? Well, LA is a very isolated and isolating place. So without Mm -hmm. the veteran community, I would have really struggled here. Uh, When I first came here, I didn't know of any other veterans. Um, You're basically trying to make headway. Nobody wants to help. Everybody's, you know, kind of guarded with their information. It's a click here and it's hard to break in. So once I found my veteran family and my veteran community, 
it's strange because a lot of people say, oh, Los Angeles, you wouldn't think vets live there. There's a huge thriving veteran community here. Huge. Um, some of my best friends are veterans. I, I don't, my brothers both live far. One of my brothers lives in Asia and my other brother lives in Colorado. So some vets that I have here who are friends, you know, are, are the aunts and, and uncles of my children. That's who they see. So the vet community is amazing. Um, how did you, how did you find that vet community? You know, it's weird because when I first moved here, I, I said, there's gotta be a vet group or something. So I had looked something sure. up on Google, nothing. It was just the, the regular like VFW. And I went to the VFW and it was all a lot of older men. Everybody was smoking. I just said, this is not for me. And that's not indicative of, of all VFW posts, but it was definitely something where I didn't see a veteran right. under 40. And I said, you know, this is not for me. I just need to keep looking. So I kept looking. And then it was probably a year later, a friend of a friend reached out to me and said, Hey, are you a veteran? And in Los Angeles, I wasn't used to hearing that in the military sense. So I said, an acting veteran. I mean, I've been in the business a while. And he said, no, a veteran. And I said, yes, of course I'm a veteran. And he said, well, there's this group called VFT veterans in film and television. And I think you'd be interested. Yes. So I went to my first meeting and I literally was that annoying girl. I sat down at every table and was like, hi, I'm Jennifer. Who are you? What do you do? And I went to every meeting after that, with the exception of one. And the one that I missed, unfortunately, Stan Lee was, was our guest, <laughs> but I, I know I was in Africa, but I, I was like, no, I love Stan Lee. So right. I never got to meet him, unfortunately. Okay. I'm, I'm, I've got to toot my, my horn on that one because I got to interview him a year oh, before he passed. He, yeah, he, he, and it was for NASCAR, it was for NASCAR digital media, the, in the NASCAR building, it's the, the, it's connected to the convention center in Charlotte at that convention center was a comic con that had Stan Lee. And I told my boss, I was like, give me a press pass right now. I'm going to go <laughs> interview this man. Right now. <laughs> and, I mean, I didn't wear NASCAR anything. I didn't have a NASCAR flag on my microphone, but I had my credentials. I went over there with a the press pass. I waited for three hours while he signed every person's, uh, everybody else that paid, you know, uh, you know, he signed, took a picture with them. Then he took a nap and I still waited. <laughs> well, he was like, what, 94 <laughs> at the time? Yeah, he was. He, yeah. I mean, I totally understood. I, I, I had a camera guy and I was and he understood, too, like what this meant. And and so we waited and we finally got in there and we we're able to do a um, about a 10 minute interview with Stan. Lee. Wow. And we asked him, we asked him questions like which superhero would be the greatest NASCAR driver. And of course, he chose Tony Stark, Iron Man. Right. You know, so. <laughs> But right. uh, went back with the footage and they did nothing with it. But I still have it. I still have it. Well, you still have it. So who cares? You still have it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They didn't, it didn't, it didn't go out anywhere. So, um, well, and it. he was a member of my American Legion post in Hollywood. Was he? And yeah, I mean, he's probably the, the most famous member of recent note. And he, I was so bummed because I never met him. And um, mm. yeah, then when he passed, I mean, He's he's with his wife now, and he's a piece, and and he he's probably one of the most successful and revered vets of all time. So I have nothing but respect for him. Absolutely, absolutely. Who who else uh, is a is a mentor for you out there in LA as far as a veteran? You know, when I first moved here, I. I had met someone in the group, um, Alan Petrashevsky. He's a retired Navy commander. He was a Top Gun instructor. He was a navigator on F-14s, um, a backseater. And 
he had said, you know, I've been here a long time. These are some of the pitfalls that I've been through. And I didn't listen to a hundred percent of the advice because we all have our own paths. But I took probably 80 to 85% of that guidance and said, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to square my stuff away here. I'm going to probably not do this. I'm going to look into this. Sure. And that's what you need as a veteran. When you come into the business, you need to connect to somebody who's been there, done that, because otherwise you're just trying to reinvent the wheel. You're wasting time. You're wasting money. And as vets coming into the business, we don't have time to waste. There are people that have been here since they were 10, 16, 18, and you're competing against them. Wow. I know that there was a, guest star that I was up for. And it was a role of a disgruntled army veteran. And uh, she had quite the backstory. And I went in and I auditioned and the casting director came out and held my hand and said, you've got this. And, and people don't do that. It's very disconnected. It's like, okay, thank you for your performance. Bye. And you leave. Mm. Everybody was pulling for me in there. And um, they pinned me, which is basically they'll say, we're trying to decide between you and somebody else. Gotcha. And they ended up casting this other actress. And I went back and I looked at her IMDb. DB and she had a ton of guest star credits. So of course it comes down to a fiscal, uh, you know, a fiscal decision. Okay. This person is tried and true. And this was before I booked stranger things before I booked Hawaii five O game shakers. They looked at her resume and said, we know that she'll come on set and deliver Jennifer. Mm, she has credits, but she doesn't have credits of this magnitude. Mm. So, she, you know, she went and she shot it and I was just kind of, you know, crushed like, Oh, and I thought if I had moved here at 18, I wouldn't be in that predicament. But then again, you know, when I was auditioning with those lines, I knew what those lines meant. And I knew what it would be like to be kicked out of the military after 18 years Ugh. with with nothing to show for it. Like I felt that pain that the character felt. You've probably seen the it. actress, not so much. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. The the actress, not so much. So I just think we need to realize that if we're coming here later. You, you don't try to reinvent the wheel, connect yourself to somebody, you know, humble yourself. Don't say, well, I was this rank in the military because that doesn't apply in entertainment. <laughs> it just doesn't. I mean, look at Adam Driver. Adam Driver was an E2 or an E3 when he ended up getting out due to his injury. Exactly. And he's in Star Wars. Hello. <laughs> and then there's people who are E9s, O6s, they get out and, you know, they're struggling and they're, they're doing extra work and they're trying to like go somewhere. So yeah. one does not equate to the other at all. Was it hard to find representation or, or to call, get callbacks as a vet? I mean, from a veteran perspective or from a female veteran perspective, was it, was there? Well, no, for me, it was not hard to secure representation because I, Throughout my career, I've worked for a casting office. I've worked with an agent. I worked with a manager. So I know what these people expect. And I always had said, I am going to be the type of actor that I would want to represent if I was an agent. So if somebody asked me to do something, my agent, my manager, there is no try. You either do it or you don't. Mm. And if you don't, don't give them an excuse because excuses are like, you know what's and everybody has them and they stink. Nobody cares. So I had always just been an actor who just does what's asked of her. And that generally doesn't happen. You know, actors are artsy fartsy people and they're flighty and they're, oh, but I've got this show and I've got this. And it's like, okay, but it's show business. It's not show art. And if you don't provide your reps with the information that they need in order to adequately pitch you and represent you, you're really doing yourself a disservice and them. So I never had a hard time getting reps. I had a hard time finding the right reps for me. And after I've been, after I was here five years, after I was here three years, I found the right manager. After I was here five years, 
years, I found the right agent. So now everything's perfect. I've got a great team, amazing, wonderful. And then as far as, you know, getting into rooms, into casting offices, that's difficult. It's very clicky. It's who you know. Now, once I'm in an office, uh, I tend to go in that office a lot. I tend to get brought back. But there are some offices it is almost impossible to get into in Los Angeles. It's almost impossible. And I'm still struggling with that. Um, when I booked Stranger Things, my agent kind of used that as a pitch. And he was like, you know, once it had been released because I had shot it and I had to just be quiet about it for months and months and months, which yeah. killed me, <laughs> which killed me. But he, he could, he could like call and say, you know, my clients on stranger things and then offices would see me, which was kind of infuriating because I was like, I'm the same actress I was before this. And I had booked, I had shot stranger things like a long time before that. So I was frustrated and everybody said, you should be happy. And I said, I'm happy. Don't get me wrong, but I'm still the same actress. Yeah. I'm still the same person. Yeah. Hmm. Jennifer Marshall. Dropping truth bombs. Yep. <laughs> it's true. You know. Well, it is it is an industry where you have to be careful because if you rock the boat, like people don't want to take a chance on you or bring you on set. I mean, this I mean it's it doesn't matter where you go. It seems like there's politics everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to give a shout out though about something you talked about earlier. Sure. Uh so a dog's way home. I'm not sure if you know, but all of the people in the scene who were playing veterans with the exception of Ashley Judd and who is the other guy who's in with the exception of two people, all of the people playing vets are actually veterans. Wow. I did not know that. That's very cool. Yes. It, so who, it's, what was the impetus behind that? Who who made that decision? I'm not really sure. John Papsidera's office um, cast that. And I'm sure the director clearly um, had, you know, input into that. But they they flew us up to Vancouver. So on the paperwork in Canada, you have to specifically say why you're using American actors because they're like, no, use Canadians. And they said, well, we can't find American actors up here. Mm. So my friend brought us, he's a Navy veteran, he uh, American Navy veteran. He actually lives in Vancouver. So they didn't have to fly him up, but Cesar, um, they flew a bunch of us up. It's mainly American veterans. And then Evan is a Canadian veteran. And that to me just meant so much. Like you, you know, you're allowing us to take part in the telling of our own stories. And I appreciate that. And one thing that often frustrates me about Hollywood is, you know, we are so good about recognizing transgender community, people of color, Native American community. Like we realize that people should be involved in the telling of their own narrative. And it's kind of insensitive. Yeah. So it's insensitive to say, we're going to do this movie about transgender people and what we have no transgender writer or we have no, nobody to talk to, but we're just going to tell their story. That's not okay. But for some reason it seems to still be okay in Hollywood to tell veteran stories without our input. Now, is it getting better? It is, but there are still scripts that come to me and I'm like, what is this script? This is insane. And I'll say, who wrote this? And I'll say, do you have a veteran in the writing room? Do you have a veteran? No, 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 no. Do you have a veteran advisor? No, 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 no. You need one. Trust me, because if you're going to make money off of us, make money off our community and off of our stories, please invite us to be involved. Please. You know, you might want to, if you want that community investment, you might want to get a veteran in the room. You know? Absolutely. And there's, there was a show recently, I'm not going to put them on blast, Yeah, but there was a show and they released their trailer and there were glaring errors in this trailer. Yeah. 
and Marines in particular went after this show and whoever was running the Twitter ended up blocking a bunch of people rather than just saying, okay, how can we fix this? Because was it the uniform? Was it, was it something about the uniform? The uniforms were insane. Were insane. And that's the thing is you just need a veteran advisor. I know a ton of advisors who are great. I've advised for the VA for a few of the PSAs that they've had. I've advised on an HBO show. Like you just need an advisor so they can push you in the right direction. Your, uh, your commercial, your radio commercial is probably going to be on your episode. So. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. I still use those for the podcast. Oh, great. So if you, if you, which one? Uh, there's ones about veterans and different times at different eras. So oh, yes, I, yes, I, yes. Yep. I think you, you said you were logistics in, in, uh, in the Navy on, on that one. So no, I think, I think I was a random voice in that one. I think there's one where I say medic Kandahar, Afghanistan. Yes, that's it. That's yep. it. Yep. Now, the, com- that now the commercial that it was attached to the commercial that aired on TV, I was actually me, yep. but I think for that voiceover, I was a random medic in Kandahar. I've yep. never been to Kandahar, but proudly representing the vets who've been there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we still use we still use all that media. So Oh, that's uh, great. When I when when this podcast was uh was handed over to me about a month ago, I, that one of that one of those pieces of media actually came up across my desk and I was like, Jennifer Marshall, she'd be a great interview. So <laughs> that's I immediately funny. Went, that's, that's funny that you recognize my voice with one line. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's easy. Because because you know, I again I you know, part part of the running joke for the past couple episodes is I'm still in my in laws basement while I'm transitioning here to DC. So <laughs> I'm with my father-in-law a lot. And I always have those conversations about the new day USA. So I hear your voice a lot. Right. And then, so I'm, I'm listening to the, to, to the radio ads here for the podcast. And I'm like, that's Jennifer. So then I, I just, yes. you know, I was like, Oh my gosh. So I, I go through the archives and I was like, okay, Tim never interviewed Jennifer. Cool. Reach out to her. So that was Tim how I did inter- Well, Tim did interview a couple of my, a couple of my friends. And I always just think it's great to see. I just love podcasts like this because it shows veterans who are doing well And, you know, once again, the media has kind of taken this narrative that we're all one way, we're all this, we're all that. And I think that's a disservice to all veterans because there was a time definitely in my life where I was really, really struggling. But we need those good stories of vets who are doing well in order to help our brothers and sisters who are struggling. And I think that when people say all veterans have PTS and all veterans have MST and all veterans, then that makes us unemployable as a community, undesirable. And so I always try to challenge, you know, the narrative and say, well, there's a lot of vets who are doing well. There's a lot of vets. Does that mean that we can't take care of our brothers and sisters? Absolutely not. It's actually better that many of us are doing well so that we can help those who are not doing well. Absolutely. I was, uh, I was talking to some, some, some friends that are, that are in their, my community out here in DC. And I, I actually wrote a paper on this. I was like, you know what I like is, you know, for every thank you for your service movie. you know, I, what I would like to see is someone like, uh, and modern family, Al Bundy's character. <gasps> Amen. Ed O'Neill. A, yeah. Ed O'Neill. He's just, a, he's just a vet. He's just a Navy vet. I, I bring up this example all the time because I'm like, he's a full, he's a fully functioning person whose veteran status only comes in from time to time. It's it shaped who he was, but he, that is the perfect example of he's, he's a vet. 
and he's living his life and he's doing what, what he does. And that's what we need as representations of that. Yes. And that we need more of that because look around, you know, we have veterans in all echelons of leadership in our society. We have veterans who are parents and coaches and community leaders and business leaders and politicians. And so to focus and say, well, you know, perfect example, my husband had put in his resume. This was a couple of years back and the hiring, he reached out to hiring and said, you know, what's going on? I keep hitting this, this wall. And she, I mean, to her credit, cause she could have, she could have gotten fired for having this conversation with him. She yeah. said, you know, there was a lot of talk when we were looking, um, when we were looking at resumes and people just think that, you know, you don't know how to talk to people. You'd be yelling at people. You'd be telling people to do push-ups." And my husband was like, what? <laughs> like, we're, we're like, this is something that only happens in boot camp, but these civilians thought that he couldn't work in HR. He would just go in and start ordering people around and put them in push-up position. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people who probably need to be in push-up position sure, <laughs> sure. in general life, but it's just that sort of thing where that's what people think vets do. Now, granted, that's a, that's a crazy scenario that most people probably don't think, but that's an actual thing. Somebody thought that. Wow. They're so disconnected. They thought that was a possibility. Wow. It's insane. He ended up taking everything Navy off of his resume, except for he put everything in civilian lingo, except for at the bottom, it said 23 years of, of honorable service in the United States Navy. Navy was only mentioned on his resume once. That's a shame. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned VFT. That's now, it's now VME, right? They, yes. They rebranded. Mm -hmm. um, they opened up a New, a New York office too as well. They did. Um, we've had, you know, it's it's been a struggle with some of the other chapters because so many of the people live in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and it's really hard to kind of manage DC and, and New York. They just don't have the numbers that we have because Los Angeles, huge, huge. Yeah. I, I would say yeah. at least 50% of our members, if not more, live in Los Angeles. So that's how, but the, the VME, VFT, that's how I kind of uh, connected with you because Paul mm -hmm. moved out to Charlotte. Uh, Paul right. used to be a, a, a director for short films out in LA, came out to Charlotte. And I was like, well, I guess you and I are the Charlotte chapter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and Paul, Paul is amazing. I mean, Paul's a perfect example of getting out of the military, starting a career that has nothing to do with the military and excelling in that because the things that he was directing, they were not military movies. And a lot of no. people think that, you know, vets get out, we only do military type things. And he was doing horror. He was, do, I mean, you name it. He was, he was doing a bunch of other things. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. So now he, him and I are both in DC. We haven't re re reconnected yet, but uh, that might be a future episode episode as well. So, Definitely. So let's talk about what you're doing to, uh, this year. Um, I was looking at IMDb because of course that's the the, the one-stop shop for see what. Yes, except IMDb does not list things that you have signed a non-disclosure agreement on. So there True. are five projects that are coming out that I have not been able to talk about. Actually, IMDb generally doesn't list them until they've aired. Got, so yeah. Gotcha. So, so hard. You got, you got five that you can't talk about. I'm excited to eventually. Yeah, I have. Start. I have five that are coming out, and I did a pretty controversial movie about three years ago that is still in post production, but it's coming out. And yeah, I had turned down a lead on that movie because it's really controversial, and one of my friends had taken a lead role, and I said, you know, aren't you worried about the blowback? And she said, well, I'm at a point in my career where it's make or break. And I said, I, I think I'm good taking a supporting role because <laughs> it could be really good press or it could be like, what on earth? 
Uh, okay. Well, let's talk about one that we can talk about. Um, yeah. Squadron 42. It's yeah. Your, it's your first video game? Is this your first it, video game? It's my first and hopefully only video game. <laughs> really? That, that yes. bad of an experience? No, I mean, it was great. I worked with one of the top directors in the business, but it was so difficult. So all of you gamers who don't appreciate what mocap people go through, please appreciate oh, you it. Had to, you had to do motion capture for it? Yep. It was motion capture. And the character is my face, is my body, is everything. So I flew out to London. I shot this game and it is really, really difficult. And for people who have never watched mocap behind the scenes, you need to do it because we were getting into this spaceship that was made out of two by fours and it really was <laughs> not a spaceship. And you have to imagine, imagine everything. The spaceship. Oh my gosh. Imagine. You have to imagine everything like you're four. And then the scripts are so technical. I I'm a mechanic in, in the game. And so, um, you know, I'm like a spaceship mechanic. And so they're coming to me and I'm like this, you know, nerdy girl who knows everything about what needs to be fixed. And the dialogue, Dialogue is literally insane. So I'm going through all of this and then it's like, okay, we're going to do another one and then we're going to tweak it a little bit. And so you have to have really great memory. You have to be super versatile and you have to be able to move really well because mocap is very, very specific. Um, it's, it was a wonderful experience. I wouldn't change it for the world, but I will probably never do that again. <laughs> again. So you, but you got to interact with other actors and actresses other in the game. Yeah, I mean that was really, great. Really, really quick before I before you before you you, you explain what, what that was like. Let me just give a, 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 the listeners a rundown of the cast for this game. Yeah, yeah. Gary, I mean, I, I saw the trailer; it looked amazing. Mm -hmm. Gary Oldman, yeah. Mark Hamill, Mark Strong, John Rhys Davis, X Files Julian Anderson, uh, the Onion Knight himself from Game of Thrones, Davos Seymour, Liam, Liam Cunningham, Liam Cunningham, yep, <laughs> and Gollum, Andy Serkis. You yeah. look farther down the road, there's other names like Henry Cavill, Superman. Yeah. Uh, what's it like to be on a project like that, though? Even though, you know, motion capped and, not, and not, as fun as that was, what's it like to be on a pr same project with that type of a rundown? Uh, no pressure, right? <laughs> no pressure. Uh, I mean, it, it was crazy. So most of the people listed I didn't shoot with, but I saw them on set. Sure. And it's one of those things. It's like I, it's like I felt on Stranger Things. It's like you look around and you say is this real life? Is this real life? How did I get here? What is going on? It's very surreal. I mean, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. Game of Thrones fan. Yeah. So when you go on set and the Onion Knight is there, you're like, what, who, what is this life? Who is, who am I? Who is this person? It's the weirdest thing. You know, when we raise our right hand at 17, 18, 19 years old and swear to support and defend the Constitution, you never think you're going to end up where you end up. And that game, the reason I bring up the military thing with that game was that casting process was covered in a show called Cast Me. And um, actually, the, the person who cast that video game, who cast me, is a, a former Marine who's now a casting oh, wow. director. So he brought me in and there were three of us who were like in the final running. They had 4,000 submissions, hundreds of auditions, about 20 people at the callback. And they highlighted the stories of three of us who were auditioning for this. And I actually think one of the girls who auditioned with me was probably a little bit better. Um, mm. Totally going to be honest with you, Natasha, she's really great. Uh, we've auditioned for similar things in the past, but I think my story was better. 
You know, she's an actor. She came here. My story was better for TV. So, you know, I think it was probably a toss up. Clearly, if I was much worse, they wouldn't have cast me. This was a TV show that you guys were on? This was a TV show that it was highlighting this wow. casting director and the work that he did. And so this was an episode of it. Uh-huh. And um, so that's how that came about. But it was an amazing experience. And when I came back and I said who the director was and that I'd worked with him and he does all this mocap stuff, everybody in the mocap world was like, oh, my gosh, you worked with Chris. I'm like, yeah, they were just blown away. <laughs> It's yeah. really cool. And I, 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 when, do you know when that game's supposed to come out? It looks really, like I said, the trailer looks really cool. I shot that game in 2015. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. So it was supposed to come out in 2017, got pushed back to 2018, got pushed back to 2019. And now it looks like it's going to be a 2020 release. But from okay. what I, what I mean, what goes into it is so so ridiculous like oh all you look at the budget of a video game compared to the budget of a movie it's like oh it's, an, it's insane and they i believe they had raised a hundred million dollars on crowdfunding for that game so it was really really insane uh really really wonderful and i guess w- we'll see i mean i'm not i never get anxious about stuff like when's it going to come out was it because there's so many things as an actor i've shot movies from five years ago that still have not come out So that's where you want to get into your career where you're booking enough that you'll always have things in post-production that will be coming out years later. Because when you look at credits on IMDb, like 2015, I think it's 2015. I have a lot of credits or 2014, one of those years. 14. Yeah. 15. I did not shoot all of those things in 2014. I shot those things in 2012, 2013, 2014, and they all happened to come out then because of post-production. So that's that's what you want to do. And like you said, that's not counting your hosting gigs, your, I mean, commercials, commercials. you've done complete, you've done a lot of stuff in that industry outside of acting in film and and, and television shows. So definitely I've, I've been, I've been very, very blessed. Um, I've been very blessed. And, and honestly, if vets are thinking about going into entertainment, first of all, know that you will be broken poor and accept that. Because it's just the way that it is. And two, never feel like you're too good for things. You know, it's like, oh, I'm too good. I'm too good. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Drink and Bros podcast. It's a huge, Absolutely. Yeah, huge podcast. The, that was one of the uh, impetus of the reason I wanted to get into podcasting was that show. Okay. Yeah. So, so it just goes to show what can lead to what can lead to what. So I just, um, I just did an episode of Drink and Bros podcast that should be out pretty soon. And the whole reason that I ended up meeting those guys, there was an Oscar gifting suite that one of my friends had said, Hey, they're looking for people. This was probably four years ago to kind of be with stars and take them around to the Oscar gifting tables and carry their bags. And I said, well, sure. I'll probably see some crazy stuff. So I'm all about it. So I went and I did that and I, you know, carried bags like, like, okay, how can I help you? You know, but but it was cool because you got to see all these people and I just kind of moved here. And so I did that. I ended up meeting a producer at that time who, um, hired me for red, red carpet gigs. Cause he said, you know, you're so effervescent. I want to bring you in and you can interview people. So I started doing that for red carpet report and I started doing red carpet stuff. And then I met Ross Patterson on a, yes. on a red carpet. And I was one of the only hosts who interviewed him because a lot of the hosts were like, this guy is crazy. And they were just kind of backing away on the red carpet. And I loved it. I thought he was hilarious. So yeah. they ended up using that interview in a movie that's coming out of theirs. And then Ross, I ran into him the other night at JT's birthday party. Um, and so he said, Hey, he said, uh, why don't you come out and, 
and and come be a guest on Drinking Bros. And I was like, are you serious? Drinking Bros is amazing. Yeah. So, so it all started from, yes, I'll carry your bags and an Oscar gifting suite. That's a great piece of advice. You know, if you, you know, Rick Robinson was one of my, was my first interview and, and our listeners can listen to him in the archives, but his advice, he was a, a primetime Emmy award cinematographer, uh, first AD, worked mm-hmm. in Hollywood for over 30 years, uh, was on the, the dangerous tour of Michael Jackson, a lot of good stuff in that episode, but he talked about. <laughs> getting a Corvette. This is how he he said he broke into the industry. He got a 57 or 58 Corvette and just paid off the guard so he can get on the lot. And that's just how Oh <laughs> my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I mean that would never work nowadays, but that's ingenious yeah. back then. Right? Right? I was I was like I was that you know, he was like I was like how did you just cuz he's like oh I just got walked on the lot of Warner Brothers. Like I was like how did you just walk on the lot of Warner Brothers? And he was like, well, you know, it's before 9/11 and I kind of paid Yeah. I had at a 57 Corvette, everyone talked about. Do, I was like, oh my do God. you remember Steve Gutenberg from Police Academy movies? Yes. So he uh, walked onto the set and he pulled chairs from something and he opened up an office on some lot. He he just walked on the lot and opened up an office. And that's pretty ballsy. I mean, you can't yeah. do that now, be, clearly, but that's pretty ballsy. You just take life by the horns and do what you do. That's it. So I, I think what I was getting at is that, uh, you know, what, what Rick was saying is, is just, like you said, be humble. And, and, and he worked a lot for the camera department for free just of to course. get into the union, you know? So, and, and that is something that I, I get it. People come here and they say, I really don't want to work for free. Listen, there are times I will still work for free. If I think it's an amazing script and it, it they're students at AFI or USC and they're, broke students, but they're incredible and they're amazing. Yeah. I'll work for free. I will because the Duffer brothers who, you know, are executive producers of Stranger Things, they were at Chapman College and they did student films at Chapman College. Everybody's a student. Everybody starts somewhere. So I'm not Absolutely. saying come here and do everything for free, but you know, there are sometimes you have to pay your dues. You have to do what you're going to do. And I worked for, I worked for free a lot the, that first year, first year and a half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that my, my career has, done very well because of that, because I never thought I'm too good for this. I'm too this, I'm too that. I was just like, I'm here to learn and and I'm humble. And at the end of the day, actors, we say lines for a living. You know, the yeah. real heroes are, you know, people who are deployed, emergency room doctors, police officers, firefighters. I get paid to say words and I'm, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate. I'm very, very lucky. But alternately, you know, the fact that I, I only have to work two to four days a month because acting does pay very well, I'm able to volunteer for causes that are important to me and I'm able to work with the veteran community. And that's part of acting that I love. And that's part of the reason I probably will never give up acting because I have so much time to dedicate to causes that I love. What is, if you were to say one right now, what's one current veteran or nonprofit uh, in the veteran space that you're following or supporting or doing something for? So I am an ambassador for a congressionally recognized award-winning nonprofit called Pinups for Vets. And we visit veterans. We dress up as World War II era pinup girls, very modest, but very colorful. And we dress up. and very tasteful, very classy. Yes, very much so. And we go and we visit veterans in VA hospitals and nursing homes. We visited over 12,000 veterans at their bedside, and we've donated over $60,000 of rehab equipment to VA centers. So that's something that's very important to me because a lot of times we go into rooms and those vets haven't had visitors in days, weeks, months, sometimes not at all. So to get to connect with these vets and sometimes they think, oh, these are pretty girls and good looking men who are coming in. 
that's nice. But once we start talking to them and they realize we're veterans too, that connection is there immediately. Wait, you're a vet? Oh my gosh, what did you guys do? We share stories, we give hugs, we sign calendars, we take photos. That to me is a very impactful organization because it shows it shows veterans that their service is, is not forgotten and that it's appreciated. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of the um, a lot of uh, the newspaper stories come out of you know, hey, this veteran didn't have any family. Yep. Uh, come out and support him. So it's it's at, you know the Pinups for Vets are, is a really good program for like you said for those vets that are in VA hospitals that have no family. That's that's you know you, to think about those those men and women. That's it's a really great cause. And and honestly, some of the the vets that I love meeting with the most are our older female veterans, because our older female veterans paved the way for women like me to serve, and they didn't get their due respect at the time. It was a really hard road for them. So to connect with them, I just spent time with a 94-year-old Navy veteran um, up in one of the nursing homes in Ventura County, and it was wonderful talking to her. And she was such, she was such a tough old broad. I loved her stories. I loved it. (laughs) And to be able to just thank her and say, you know, you made this possible for women like me. It's important. I think it's important work. Jennifer, is there anything that I haven't asked that you, that I, or I'm let them leaving out that you think is important to share? Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, we have some issues going on in our veteran community. And I think that the main thing that I'm seeing over and over again, and I've worked with several veterans non- nonprofits. I ran a veteran nonprofit. We have an, a problem with transitioning. And, you know, we have two to three months as soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, and Coast Guardmen to, to learn how to become that. And then we have five days in transition assistance program to get out. For many of us, some people didn't have jobs before they went in. I, I came in at 17. I had a job, but I'd never paid a mortgage or anything like that. Yeah. So we have a hard time when we get out. What I say to people, if they are getting out or they have just gotten out, or if they're planning to get out down the road, you have to stay connected to the veteran community. You have to volunteer somewhere. You don't get out of the military and then that feeling goes away of wanting to give back and wanting to help. You have to stay connected. You have to volunteer somewhere and you need that camaraderie, especially for people who are either really invested in the way that the military is or people who've served 20 years. You can't get out, be surrounded by a bunch of civilians and expect not to feel like you you don't fit in. I've dealt with this all the time. I got out in 2004. I have continued to surround myself with veterans because it's important because they understand. They understand me. And I haven't had that luck with many civilians. So for those of you who are struggling, reach out go to a legion, go to a post, team red, white, and blue, team Rubicon, find a local nonprofit where veterans are, where veterans are volunteering. And if you go to the legion and say, Hey, there's nobody young here. Okay, great. You be that first young member. You go out and recruit other members. We need the legion. We need it. So go out and make that post the young fun post. That's what Hollywood, Hollywood posted post 43. It started with one young veteran and he brought in a ton. And now it's mainly young veterans. We have vets from world war two to vets who just got back yesterday. You have to surround yourself with members of the community and immerse yourself in the community, especially if you're struggling, we're here for you. Reach out. I was a gunner's mate, Tonkin golf. Logistics, Ramstein. Medic, Kandahar. As a veteran, it doesn't matter when or where you served. Infantry, Camp Pendleton. Or what you did. The VA has benefits that may be useful to you right now. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, 
visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. Medic, Kandahar. That was her. That was Jennifer also in that ad. Um, Again, thanks to Jennifer Marshall for taking the time out of her extremely busy schedule to have that conversation. And you can see exactly how busy she is at jennifermarshall.com. On there is all her social media, her Twitter, Instagram, uh, if you want to follow her on anything that she's doing. And she is doing a lot out there in Hollywood. So this week's veteran of the week is Colonel William Andrews. William served from 1980 to 2010 and took part in Operation Desert Storm, Operation Southern Watch, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, and the war in Afghanistan. William applied and was accepted to the Air Force Academy where he received a four-year college education and pilot training. He experienced combat for the first time in the Persian Gulf War where he was tasked with leading a squadron of F-16s to strike Iraqi targets throughout Operation Desert Storm. During the heaviest aerial bombardment, William and his team flew multiple missions a day for 13 days straight. On one mission, William and his squadron were called to provide close air support for U.S. Special Forces who had been pinned down behind enemy lines. As a result of their precision, William and his team were able to successfully drop cluster bombs against targets within 100 yards of the U.S. forces, saving the lives of eight soldiers. On February 27th, 1991, one day before the end of the Gulf War, Williams F-16 was struck by an Iraqi surface-to-air missile while engaging retreating Iraqi forces. As a result, William was forced to eject over the battlefield, landing in the middle of a Republican Guard battalion. Despite being at enemy gunpoint and having broken his leg, William grabbed his radio and ordered his squad to take evasive measures, saving them from being struck as well. After being taken prisoner by Iraqi forces, William was transported around Kuwait and Iraq and narrowly avoiding being hit by U.S. bombs. After eight days in captivity, William was returned to the U.S. where he received treatment for his injuries. Undeterred by his capture, William returned to flying as quickly as he was allowed and again flew combat missions during Operation Iraqi Freedom and the war in Afghanistan. William ended his career serving on the Joint Staff at the Pentagon and retired as a colonel in 2010. After retiring, William became a professor at the National Defense University. During his service, William earned two distinguished flying crosses, a V for Valor, a Purple Heart, a POW medal, and the Air Force Cross for heroism. Sadly, William passed away from brain cancer in 2015 at the age of 56. We honor your service, William. That's it for this episode of Born the Battle. Again, if you would like to contact the show directly, you can reach us at podcast.va.gov. Go ahead, send us an email. Let us know how we're doing, how we can improve the show. If you have a comment on a previous episode, I will read that on the air. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we are at the Department of Veterans Affairs on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, DEPT Vet Affairs, DEPT Veteran Affairs, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. You will always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, the best place for VA news is on our blog, vantagepointblogs.va.gov. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.